This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, debate number one. One for the record books. In the studio today, Matt Makoviak, founder of Potomac Strategy Group, as guest co-host. And on the phone, from an undisclosed location in western Virginia, Robert Draper. He'll have a major piece in the New York Times Magazine tomorrow, the Mitt Romney who might have been, and he's been filing for GQ on the presidential debates. So, are Governor Romney's obituaries premature? We'll also talk with Craig Shirley, the conservative public relations specialist and author of books on Ronald Reagan and historian of the Second World War, who hasn't shrunk from criticizing this year's GOP nominee. Is it time for all of us to pause in our assessment? Maybe. Maybe not. This week's showdown in Denver represented only 90 shining minutes following a summer of ineptitude for Governor Romney. The selection of a vice presidential pick has yet to pay big dividends. The Republican convention paled as the Democratic one that followed it. And the debates, many were expecting three strikes and you're out. But Mitt Romney, he's still at the plate. Now he and President Obama have two weeks to return to the campaign trail before they meet again at Hofstra in the town hall format moderated by CNN's Candy Crowley. I have some particular views on why the one-on-one debate in Denver played well to Mitt Romney's strengths and exposed some of the president's weaknesses. But first, I want to bring in and hear from my friend Matt Mikoviak. During the Bush years, Matt worked in the press office of the newly created Department of Homeland Security before becoming press secretary to Texas Senator Kay Bailey Hutchison and Montana Senator Conrad Burns. He now runs Potomac Strategy and is seen and read far and wide as a commentator with a conservative perspective. Matt, welcome to Polyoptics. Hey, Josh. Great to be with you. So from your perspective, Matt, break down Wednesday night from Denver, if you would. Yeah, it was striking. You know, I think... Uh I think folks probably really expected sort of a tie, you know, that Romney really needed to be aggressive, but but that Obama would uh, would give just as as good as he got. But but really, uh, the story last night was that Obama uh, was really the man who wasn't there, uh, didn't seem confident, didn't seem engaged, and and Romney was about as good as as you could really hope for from our perspective. Um, very sharp, um, very detailed. You know, this is someone who'd been criticized for not being specific. Very detailed last night. Um, you know, Romney really looked like he had both a grasp of the issues, but also that he had a, a real desire to to speak to the country, to speak to the middle. And I think a lot of this has to do with the the natural inclination of Romney is to talk to the middle. And in a general election debate, that's what it's about. You know, in the primary, you have to play to the base, and that's not as natural for Romney. Uh, Romney had to have a great performance, uh, you know, at the, at the debate, and he did. Uh, and and so now, you know, the Obama campaign is going to have to deal with about two weeks, I think, of negative press about this. There's really very little opportunity for them to break this negative news cycle until the next presidential debate. I'm not sure about the two weeks of negativity that President Obama is facing, and I'll get to that for a second, but I'm fascinated by what you say of the nature, uh, to the nature of the tie, and that is that in our, uh, in our world where the uh, punditocracy is sort of loath to uh, really declare on one side or another, there seemed even before the debate ended last night, if you were following the tweets, to be a consensus, not just among the center or the right, but even among the left. And right as soon as the debate ended, people like Chris Matthews coming right out and saying, where was President Obama last night? What's your view of the fact that 
well, maybe the press isn't so biased toward the left, but maybe they're biased toward who they perceived as the winner. And if they saw a clear differentiation last night, they were quite happy to, to call it the way they saw it. Yeah, it's interesting that you had this sort of the unanimity, uh, you know, of, of opinion from from left to right. If you watched MSNBC, all the commentators were were deeply uh, worried about you know, the president's performance. They didn't understand it. Chris Matthews uh, got a lot of attention for that, um, and, and the left tried to blame the moderator and and has tried to make some excuses. But there there really was unanimity, and it is interesting. It does play sort of back against that sort of media bias. Uh, charge, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Jonathan Martin at Politico late, uh, recently has been been writing about sort of this this choose your own adventure idea of news that that uh, consumers of news are really going to sort of uh, receive news from places that are ideologically aligned with their own views. Um, and you know, you didn't really see that uh, last night because you had really the, the left, the center, and the right all within about 20 minutes of the beginning of the debate. Uh, really, uh, you know, had had the same view, and that was that that Romney was the aggressor. Uh, Romney was much sharper, much more confident, uh, and, and Obama wasn't. And you could even see that in the, in the nonverbal communication, you know, and that's a lot of what uh, you talk about in polyoptics. But, you know, Obama was, you know, looked sort of incredulously at, at Romney as he was, he was making attacks. Um, you know, there's been some, some uh, something's been made of sort of this smirk that Obama had. Um, but And he was, you know, sort of looking down a lot. And while Romney looked straight at Obama when he was talking to him and when he was, uh, uh, when Obama was talking back to him, uh, and, and and Romney just looked very 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 confident. So I think even the nonverbal communication. I mean, there's been some 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 writing about how Romney even looked more presidential than Obama. The nonverbal communication is important. Uh, it, you know, a lot of people look at nonverbal communication. They try to see whether it matches up with the verbal communication. And for Romney, it did. Well, that's right. It's a very special setting, uh, a setting that was viewed by 58 million people uh, across all of the broadcast and cable networks that carried it. Uh, and the notion of the two men occupying exactly the same screen, which is the same lighting, the same backdrop, the same makeup, the same camera angles, and how they used or, or ignored those camera angles so that when uh, so many people saw this show of two people side by side on a split screen, for most of the audience at home, these 58 million people, they're thinking, boy, those guys are standing shoulder to shoulder. Right. And if one person who isn't speaking is genially smiling and standing ready for the next question, and the other is sort of, th he is actually standing about 14 or 16 feet away, so he thinks he's kind of out of the shot, but he's in the shot. He's part of the shot, and he's part of the impression being left. And uh, I'd love to hear maybe just uh, how it got started with President Obama talking about his anniversary. Uh, there are a lot of points I want to make tonight, but uh, the most important one is that uh, 20 years ago I became the luckiest man on earth because Michelle Obama agreed to marry me. And so uh, I just want to wish, uh, sweetie, uh, you happy anniversary and let you know that a year from now we will not be celebrating it in front of 40 million people. Now, Matt, that was one moment in the debate where you uh, had heard a few chuckles and laughter from the audience. You heard it a little bit from Governor Romney as well. But otherwise, the Commission on Presidential Debates events are special because uh, Jim Lehrer and the debate commissioners, Janet Brown, they make such a point about, one, keeping the audience there small, and two, admonishing them not to make a peep. And that's so different from the dynamic in the primary debates, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the audience is there, 
but you really don't know it. And and with the lighting on that stage, I mean, you really can't see the audience. You can only really see the moderator. Um, and, and yeah, this I was struck by the split screen. You know, I was watching on C-SPAN and. And it does look as though not only are they close to each other, but but that but that uh, you know just sort of good good manners would require that you look at the person while they're speaking to you, particularly in a high pressure situation uh, like that. Um, and and you know Romney just seemed to have sort of better, I guess, manners uh, in, in that sense. Again, this goes back to confidence, and I think for Romney, you know, the the, the experience he'd had debating in the past. Uh, what, 19 or something times during the primary, gave him a lot of experience. For Obama, you know, he hasn't had much experience. I don't think he's done the Sunday show in two years. Uh, he hasn't really faced very many tough questions, doesn't do press conferences very often, seems to have staff that surround him that, that, that generally sort of um, uh, support what he wants to do and, and probably don't challenge him all that much. Um, so this was a very, you know, sort of out-of-body experience for him. And, and, and he had 90 minutes and nowhere to go. Uh, and, 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 you know, I think they looked to the moderator a little bit, but, but Lara really let them go out, go at each other. And if you looked at the time, it was interesting. Obama spoke 42 minutes. Romney spoke 38 minutes. They actually looked at it. Romney spoke 500 more words than Obama did in four less minutes. So, you know, I, I guess the, the left wants uh, the moderator to allow Obama to speak less. Is that what the argument is? I don't quite understand it. Well, it's the old time of possession argument in the NFL, but if you have Tom Brady throwing to uh, Wes Welker and you complete a lot of those, you don't need to the, uh, the ball in your hand all that time. Well, let's expand the conversation a bit and bring in a guy that both you and I have read very closely uh, over the last few years and admire a lot. He has sequestered himself somewhere uh, in Western Virginia, at least by his area code, Robert Draper. He's got the big article in the New York Times Magazine uh, this week, the Mitt Romney who might have been, and he covers politics for both uh, the Times and GQ and others. Uh, welcome to Polyoptics, Robert Draper. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you've heard our conversation so far. Uh, what's it like when you're uh, uh, in a log cabin somewhere and it's just you and a TV set and you're watching the debate? Yeah, well, a TV set also that doesn't get cable. So for better or for worse, I, I didn't get to hear Chris Matthews' rant uh, uh, about Obama's performance. But it was interesting, uh, you know, what kept reverberating in my ears, Josh, was um, uh, the, uh, the words I'd been hearing from Brett O'Donnell, the Republican um, political debate coach, uh, who was um, given a lot of play in the story that I wrote for GQ about presidential debates, and who had said to me, you know, um, uh, debates are not monopoly contests. It's, you know, it's, it's wrong-headed for a candidate to go in and answer the question just as it was asked. It's about framing arguments. It's about, uh, you know, not only defining yourself, but defining the other guy. And this is what Romney did, I think, very capably, and what um, Obama utterly failed to do. Uh, you did get a sense that, that um, Obama, in a kind of professorial way, um, uh, was answering questions as asked and sort of doing one you know, mini-lecture after the next, where Romney was clearly viewing every question that came up as an opportunity for, um, for attack. Now, I, I, would, I, I agree with what Matt was just saying about um, uh, Obama's performance. I'd refine it slightly to say not only um, uh, to, to include not only the fact that Romney's had a lot more experience lately in terms of debates in the primary cycle, but that also Romney's had more prep time. And to me, that was very evident. I, I saw a, a clip um, this morning in Politico where um, uh, Obama ha had mentioned to one of his debate advisors that it was, quote, a drag uh, doing this debate prep. And that's very much the Barack Obama who was reluctant to uh, do debate preparations during the primary cycle of 2007 and 2008. 
but even regardless of his attitude towards them, he only had like three days to do this. Romney had been doing it for quite some time, and I'd been hearing reports out of Vermont where uh, he was doing debate prep uh, that they were very vigorous. He was a very eager pupil, and he recognized the stakes. Uh, President Obama seemingly did not. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, let's talk about your piece a little bit because it, it really delves back into the gubernatorial term uh, of Mitt Romney, um, which I guess was, what, 2003 to 2007, elected in 2002 over state treasurer Shannon O'Brien. Um, you go back and, and really investigate that time on a couple issues specifically, but also in terms of legislative relationships. And let me throw out one theory that I've had about Romney for, for a long time and see whether you think this is backed up by some of your reporting. I believe Romney decided that he was going to run for president in 2003 um, because that was the time frame that he actually flipped on the ATR tax pledge. You mentioned in there that he he refused to sign the Grover Norquist tax pledge. I I believe that 2003 was when he flipped. And, of course, you also detail in the piece uh, the stem cell meeting and, and how it took him a little while, but he seemed to flip on abortion because of that. Um, it's clear that he, he ran for governor and started sort of governing uh, as a moderate. But once he started looking at the national political scene, he realized he couldn't be both a moderate governor in a blue state, but also a candidate who could run for president. Yeah, no, I think there's some truth to that. As, as for the actual years, what, what does seem to be the case is that in 2003, um, some of his political functionaries began looking into forming um, the uh, Commonwealth Super PAC or the Commonwealth uh, Political Action Committee. They didn't actually do so uh, until uh, Romney gave them the uh, official blessings in 2004, but they were already laying the groundwork. There's little question, but that Mitt Romney had been thinking um, about the presidency uh, for you know, a fair amount of his adult life. That doesn't mean he was necessarily uh, aiming you know, all of his uh, energies towards it. But uh, after winning the governorship, um, it, it became clear that he wasn't going to be sticking around too long. That especially became clear, though, I think, in 2004. And I think that the piece that I wrote for the New York Times magazine uh, details that pretty clearly, that, it's a, that, that his single term was in many ways a tale of two governorships, uh, the, the first two years in which uh, he was bent upon, bent upon doing things, the second two years in which he was bent upon being something, and being something as a, a presidential candidate who would appeal um, to Republican primary voters. And, and you could argue in a way that that's sort of the duality to Mitt Romney, the, the fixer and the striver, um, and, uh, the, and, and one that's evident even in the debate last night, uh, a guy who um, uh, I think for the first time ever uh, to a, a, a large national audience uh, revealed that um, willingness and that ability um, to go into a broken system and fix it. And he, he made allusions to that frequently in the debate last night. But we saw also, you know, areas in which uh, he was reminding people of his conservative credentials, uh, and that's the striver in Romney. I want to get both your views, Robert, and Matt's uh, on Governor Romney before the gubernatorial time in a second, but let's hear a little bit from Governor Romney about not wanting to kill jobs at the debate. There was a survey done of small businesses across the country. It said, what's been the effect of Obamacare on your hiring plans? And three quarters of them said it makes us less likely to hire people. I just don't know how the president could have come into office facing 23 million people out of work, rising unemployment, an economic crisis at the, at the kitchen table, and spent his energy and passion for two years fighting for Obamacare instead of fighting for jobs for the American people. It has killed jobs. 
So you hear some word choice there, kitchen table, and then the repetition of jobs. And it sounds to me, as a person who spends most of his life in corporate America uh, doing pitches for big deals, and Robert talked when he joined us about the stakes involved, that you know, both of us, all three of us have watched the news reports over the last few weeks. A guy, uh, Stuart Stevens, taking it on the chin for problems at the convention. These days taken in Vermont to do debate prep. Uh, Chuck Todd uh, lamenting the fact that he's not in battleground states doing sort of small rally after small rally, but is is sequestered to do this debate prep. But it sounds to me, and it it sounded to my ear last night, that this was a Mitt Romney from Bain Capital days, realizing that there are big stakes and that selling it in the room in front of someone you're trying to do a deal with was so very important because the stories and the aphorisms seem to come out so smoothly. And what do, what do both of you think about that this is that this particular venue, not eight people around a podium, but one-on-one -on -one and the camera just on him, was a, was a, a approximation of what it must have been like for the head of Bain Capital to be selling a deal uh, to a prospective funder. It seems to me that, 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 that Romney's been in, in these kinds of settings, perhaps not in politics, but in business uh, so many times before, high stakes, negotiations, board meetings, you know, places where you got to perform. Uh, and it's, it's all about what you are selling, how you sell it, um, how you listen. You know, Romney was a very good listener last night. I mean, he was in, 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 in that debate earlier this week because, you know, he was able to both defend uh, his own record. Uh, but then also pivot and go back on offense. And so, I, I, you know, I, I do think the debate prep piece is, is a big part of this. Ronnie was able to devote more time. Look, I also think that it was a priority. I think it was less of a priority uh, for Obama, and that's a choice that they mean. Obviously, he has a day job, and there have been lots of things that have, that have happened. He's also spent a lot of time doing interviews with non-traditional media uh, and more mainstream media. So, look, I think, again, this, this just goes back to his data background. And for Romney, I think he believes... He can he can do anything if he he, he uh, if he basically uh, puts the time to it and 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 you know learns as much as he needs to and does enough practice. I agree with some, if not all, of that. Um, the history of Mitt Romney, comma debater, is not in fact the history of a guy who has always believed he could master this sort of thing. He was um, he was not a very good debater in his 1994 Senate race against uh, Ted Kennedy. Right. In 2002, he went into the debates. Um, with great reluctance as a result of his experience with Kennedy. And one of their early strategies was to limit the number of debates. And a later strategy, even when um, you know, he realized he had to get back in the game because he was 10 points behind Shannon O'Brien, um, was that, okay, he'd do more debates, but he wanted more candidates in those debates so that he would have to speak less. So there was always a great reluctance to, to Romney. Um, what we're seeing now, I think, is, is a very recent change. Part of it is because um, the economy favors him. I mean, that's, that's the subject he likes most to talk about, rather than, say, Iraq in the 2008 cycle. Part of it is he's just a better debater than he was back then through sheer accumulation of experience. Uh, and, and part of it, I think, also is that um, Rom what Romney has done very well, what he proved he can do very well, is, is learn from his mistakes. And I think that, that he also, like Obama, was reluctant to do full-on debate preparation, meaning um, uh, do the entire format, 90 minutes, uh, with a moderator in the past. Uh, clearly, that's no longer the case. And, and clearly, he's, he's come to understand, not just in an intellectual way, but in an oratorical way, how to do these debates. Uh, to me, you know, what was most surprising was that though Obama doesn't have 
Romney's recent experience. Obama did go through three, three of these kinds of debates before uh, where Romney has not in front of a huge nationwide audience. This was you know, a very high-stakes endeavor, the likes of which Mitt Romney had never seen before, and I thought he excelled. Obama had seen this before, and I thought he failed. One person who is also getting some uh, grief for having failed is the moderator, Jim Lehrer of PBS. Let's hear a little bit from him last night, but then let me posit a question to both of you. Well, there's a specific. But let's, let's, but let's, mention, let's, 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 let's mention the other one. Let's talk the other big well, one. The no, big no, one. Let's, no, no, let's right. not. So <laughs> the, the essential nature of the moderator and whether Jim Lehrer, who has done more of them than almost anybody else, if not more than anybody else, uh, struggled to get control of that debate. But I'd argue that that was actually an excellent debate with the, with the minimizing of the moderator and allowing this conversation between these two men to go where it was going to go. Any reason why you would say Lara did a bad job based on the outcome of the debate? No, I wouldn't. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. Um, my view is that it was a very substantive debate, surprisingly so, and that um, we had, uh, if we had fewer and fewer questions that oftentimes would have, you know, I mean, I've, to me, I have very vivid memories of, say, during the 2008 cycle uh, debates having, you know, in which moderators were asking uh, Barack Obama, how come you don't wear a flag lapel pin? And, and you know, if, if it was too wonkish for um, some of the punditry, you know, too bad. I, I, I think that um, uh, you got a real sense of where, you know, of, of where these guys stood on, on fairly important issues. And Lair's laissez-faire attitude, I think, aided and embedded uh, that. So I, I would applaud him, actually, you know, rather than uh, harangue him for his performance as moderator. Yeah, blaming the refs uh, rarely works, uh, as the uh, as the Green Bay Packers learned uh, painfully recently. Um, in, in looking back again at your piece on, on, on Romney, what else strikes you about the Romney that we've come to know today versus the Romney that was governor? I mean, you you talk in the piece about climate change, about the regional uh, a climate uh, a consortium that was being arranged in the Northeast and how he was initially very supportive of that and then sort of pulled back as his national aspirations uh, perhaps took over. Um, is there anything else that, that strikes you about the, the Romney that we see today uh, versus the Romney when he was governor? Well, um, the Romney that we saw back then, and I think it tends to, to be a forgotten piece of, of Romney, in large part because his uh, campaign strategy has been to avoid um, accentuating this, is that Romney had always had an appetite for big and bold ideas. Now, some of this was hereditary. I mean, his father, is, as the CEO for American Motors, you know, was um, pioneered the fuel-efficient car, and uh, and and Romney always loved. To, you know, to, uh, you know, advisors of his have always liked talking to me about uh, the books that Romney reads and and uh, how uh, Romney will read them in French at times, and and uh, and how Romney likes to conduct his meetings with you know the uh, really a, um, uh, evincing a weakness for um, you know something that is outside the box. Um, that's why these kinds of things, such as embryonic cloning, uh, known as therapeutic cloning, uh, and um, uh, climate change uh, cap-and-trade plans, were very appealing to him until you know, it, it came to be 2004 and early 2005, and he was reminded by political advisors, chiefly his chief of staff, Beth Myers, that you're getting way out in front of where Republicans are, particularly Republican primary voters, way out in front of where the Bush White House was, where, where, uh, where say, South Carolina voters were and Iowa voters were. And so um, we've seen less of that. I, I think uh, to bring this back, by the way, to the debate um, in this respect, I think that this, um, uh, you know, uh, Obama's spin machine trying to, uh, prompt the reaction of, of uh, uh, testy Mitt as they were doing in their tweets after the debate completely misses the root 
of the aversion that people have to Mitt Romney. And, and that aversion is people don't know who Romney is, what lies at his core, in part because he's changed positions so much. And I, and I think that really what Romney is, above all else, is a guy who um, likes to fix broken situations and is particularly interested in those innovative uh, means by which to do so. Uh, even that was not apparent last night, though we got you know, a sense of the fixer to, to Mitt Romney. And it's not clear to me um, if we would be able to see that if he were a President Romney, since, as I conclude in the New York Times Magazine piece, I think he'd face some significant headwinds um, from uh, the, the right wing of his party, the same headwinds that blew him off course while he was governor. So let's now look at down the next two weeks or so before the next debate at Hofstra University, Robert Draper, Matt Mikoviak, uh, here on Polyoptics on Sirius XM, Channel 124, the POTUS channel. Um, we could run into the same challenges for Governor Romney that he's faced with one exception last night over the last several weeks, which is he's not a good campaigner or a great candidate. Uh, that that the currency of campaigning for the next two weeks is going to be on the stump in front of crowds. And this is where President Obama shines, both because of the organizational skill and being able to put together five-figure crowd amounts and also the rhetorical skill of being able to put it all in teleprompter and deliver it uh, in the way he might have hoped to deliver it on stage at University of Denver. Matt thinks that uh, Obama could be on the defensive for the next two weeks, but I might say to both of you that uh, it may only take a couple days for President Obama to regain his footing and for this performance to be in the rearview mirror looking ahead toward a town meeting debate format at Hofstra. Matt? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, um, it's going to be interesting. You know, you have the ripple effects from the jobs report. You'll have Saturday Night, you know, Saturday Night Live making fun of the debate. And then you'll have, obviously, the, the uh, foreign policy speech on Monday at, at, at VMI. All of these things will play into the narrative. But, but the question, again, is how does Obama break this, the narrative that exists now, which is that he was a poor debate performer, that Romney beat him, that he was better prepared, that the strategy in Chicago was, was not uh, good enough. Uh, and so it's, it's just it's sometimes very hard to break these, these negative narratives, particularly once they take hold. Uh, you saw that with Romney really over the last four weeks. It seemed like they couldn't catch a break. And I think that we may be entering a two-week period where Obama doesn't catch a break going to the next debate. And, and look, the next debate I think is going to be fascinating. It's a town hall format, so you have interactions with real people. Uh, you're going to have, I think Obama's going to really need to, to, to score some, some points and, and really probably be the aggressor. How Romney responds to that uh, will be very interesting. And, of course, how the polls uh, reflect this latest uh, debate will, will also be quite telling. Uh, well, you know, of course, we've all been to this rodeo, um, and the rodeo took place in 2004. You know, you'll recall that, that John Kerry mopped up the floor with George W. Bush in the first debate, and Kerry, for that matter, performed very ably in the succeeding two debates. Um, and, and in so doing, I think, forced Americans to really give him a long look. But the reality was that Americans just didn't like the guy. I mean, didn't like Kerry, or at least not enough of them did, and, and didn't like him enough to want him to be their president. And I think that is still Mitt Romney's major challenge. And, and, uh, and so I, I do think that, that, um, that Matt, you're right, that um, uh, Obama is going to have to react to the reality that he, that, um, he put in a poor, uh, poor initial performance. And I think essentially he's going to have um, to cop to that, you know, in, in the next few days on the stump. I mean, he, he certainly can't pretend um, that it was uh, a rousing victory because no one thinks that it was. Uh, Saturday Night Live indeed will rub it in. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I think that um, Obama needs to, quote-unquote, change the narrative uh, himself 
um, by acknowledging, you know, that he didn't really come out swinging and that he's going to have to do a better job. As for the town hall, you know, the uh, format, it, it's kind of a laugher. Uh, you know, that um, as McCain found out at his peril, uh, his people negotiated successfully to have a town hall debate as a second debate, and they thought, wow, this is a great advantage for us because McCain's so great at town halls. But these aren't real town halls. They don't have that kind of crazy and festive atmosphere where questions are coming out of the blue and maybe some people show up wearing costumes. Uh, it's, it's very, the ecology is very weird at these debates, um, as both you guys were alluding to beforehand. And, and, uh, and so it's um, uh, the opportunity for a quote-unquote human moment with quote-unquote real people uh, is not quite what you would expect. It's unclear to me whether that's going to play um, to Obama or, or, or against him. We'll have to see. Right. And the next uh, preview stories will all be about whether uh, Obama or Romney does the, the Al Gore lurk and moves too close to uh, Mitt Romney's space. Uh, Robert Draper, you can read him tomorrow uh, in the New York Times, the Mitt Romney who might have been a story of uh, Governor Romney during his gubernatorial days in Massachusetts uh, and how that shaped his his present campaign. And uh, we'll all be watching Saturday Night Live tonight to see how they uh, satire this debate that just finished in Denver. Robert Draper, good luck with the rest of your work in Virginia. Uh, hope to have you back on Polyoptics soon. Thanks very much. Look forward to it. Well, we left uh, Robert Draper back to his work uh, getting ready for his next book. Uh, but let's hear one more piece from the debate uh, where President Obama talks about the pursuit of perfection as a president. Four years ago, uh, I said that I'm not a perfect man and I wouldn't be a perfect president. And that's probably a promise that Governor Romney thinks I've kept. But I also promised that I'd fight every single day on behalf of the American people and the middle class and all those who are striving to get in the middle class. I've kept that promise. And if you'll vote for me, uh, then I promise I'll fight just as hard in a second term. Matt Makoviak, the, the message in what President Obama is saying is right on. But let, we're on the radio, so we can really hear through the tone. And I wonder if we were talking a little bit earlier whether altitude or exhaustion or fatigue or other factors played into whether he's passionately giving that message because the message is is pitch perfect, but but the tone is not right. Yeah, that's right. And you know, I'm not convinced that uh, that he was tired. I mean, I do think that, that 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 when you do travel to Denver, if you've ever been there, the altitude really does impact you. There's no question that it does. But on the other hand, he'd had a pretty light two days before that in Henderson, Nevada, doing debate, debate prep. He went to Hoover Dam and toured that. You know, I think he was probably fairly relaxed, uh, somewhat stress-free during that period of time. It wasn't like he was in the bubble at the White House and uh, receiving briefings and calls and having a crazy, you know, crazy day. So I, I'm just, you know, look, I, I kind of agree, I think, with, with Krauthammer. I mean, this was a, a guy who was, I think, trying to run the clock out and had a lead. Um, and, you know, I think Obama may have thought he had a larger lead than he really does. I mean, I think it's like a, a field goal, you know, going into the fourth quarter. Uh, I think he thought perhaps he was up by two touchdowns uh, and had and had the ball. Um, so, you know, it, it's interesting. I mean, the, the question is whether Obama really believes that he hasn't been a perfect president and that he's made mistakes because he's not been very specific about which mistakes he's made. He told Univision audience that uh, his biggest mistake uh, if I remember correctly, was 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 not getting immigration done, but that he tried and he would try next next term. You know, he's also talked about, uh, told media, major media interviews that that his biggest mistake was not communicating, not telling a story about what why why he's doing what he's doing. I don't necessarily think that anyone believes that the biggest mistake he's made is communication. 
Uh, you know, I think a lot of people think the stimulus didn't succeed. Obamacare, spending two years on that and not on jobs was a mistake. Spending the debt, you know, there are other things you can certainly cite. So, um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, th- th- what you have is you have a likability gap in Obama's favor, but you also have an incumbent who is below 50 on both job approval and reelect. And so, th- you know, the circumstance exists where either candidate can win. And it'll be very interesting to see in the, in the coming days how the polling reflects uh, uh, this latest debate, whether uh, I don't think the likability gap will change very much, but but it's possible the overall ballot number and the job approval and reelect numbers for Obama will change. Matt, you're at a slightly younger generation than me. On Wednesday night, when the uh, the debate happened in Denver, I also had an opportunity to take my eight year old and my five year old to Yankee Stadium to watch the last game of the season to hope that my Boston Red Sox might upend the New York Yankees before they took the American League Eastern Division. So my wife and I went and I put the debate on uh, on DVR and I said, we'll watch it starting at about 1030 and we'll stay up till midnight to watch it. And we got home and, you know, my natural instinct was to take out the iPad and, and check the tweets. But because this was no longer real time for me, I didn't want to have my watching experience biased by all the people that I'm following. How did you watch it? And to what extent is Twitter changing the way we form our own opinions versus allow ourselves to be persuaded by people we admire or think or follow online? Yeah, I think it changes everything. I think for one thing, you don't pay full attention to what you're watching. I mean, I noticed that, you know, I I follow almost 3,200 people on Twitter. It's a ridiculous number of people to follow. And of course, I'm missing things I can't possibly keep up. Uh, but I try to catch most of what's important, and, and of course, during a major event like that, I mean, la- the, the debate was the, the was the the largest uh, number of act- amount of activity on Twitter uh, in, in in the history of Twitter, broke breaking the record that we saw during the Democratic National Convention. But you, there's no question. I mean, it, it you know it's it's like watching a movie and having a a you know a film critic whispering in your ear while you're watching and telling you why a scene is bad or what the character is really trying to do here. Or, you know, it, 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 there's there's no way that it cannot impact. What you think, and that's why there's a real groupthink mentality, uh, herd mentality on Twitter. Um, that that you know, once sort of that that opinion hardens, um, uh, you know, other people sp- begin to, to buy into it, and an opinion is shared, uh, and it just sort of ripples through the entire population. And that's why elite opinion matters. It matters because those folks have uh, uh, zones of influence and, and networks, and, and and once they they share their opinions, they oftentimes have great impact. So. You know, the days of sitting down with popcorn and watching something for an hour, hour and a half and coming to your own conclusion and then maybe watching the the news the next day and and having that impact you are long gone. Um, Now, Twitter forces you to 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 be receiving information uh, visually uh, on, a you know, through a means that's totally separate from the television. And for someone like me who who does some commentating, you know, I'm, I'm constantly trying to think of witty things to say, to pick up followers or get retweeted or have an impact to, to analyze things. And so I think what it also causes you to do is it causes you to, to, to come to snap judgments, uh, to judge every, every sentence, you know, every nonverbal communication, every, you know, five minute period, uh, rather than sort of sit back and analyze an entire hour, hour and a half. Well, this same snap judgment and the same sort of following who we think 
are forming interesting opinions. I think while it played to Governor Romney's assistance in Denver, it also totally upended him in Tampa. I mean, those of us who were watching the C-SPAN feed of Thursday night at the convention watched uh, before 10 o'clock the very nice biographical film of Governor Romney. They watched the wonderful testimonials of people that had helped in his church and people that had worked with at Bain Capital. 10 o'clock rolls around and Clint Eastwood comes on and does his 12 minutes of shtick followed by a future bright star of the Republican Party, perhaps a future presidential candidate, Marco Rubio. But people were so shocked by not only what what Eastwood did uh, at the podium, but how everyone was reacting and wanting to absorb all of those reactions. You barely paid attention to Rubio, and you almost uh, were on to thinking about and writing your commentary for the next day while Governor Romney was making his acceptance speech. That's right. And, and you know, some you never know what's going to catch sort of the cultural attention of the populace. But, but you know, in the debate, it was Big Bird, right? I mean, this is sort of a throwaway line from Romney about how he likes Big Bird, but he doesn't think funding PBS is worth borrowing 40 cents on the dollar from China. Uh, it's a memorable line. It's a cultural reference. Everyone knows what Big, who Big Bird is and what he looks like. Um, but Big Bird, I think, was the fourth most searched term on Google during the debate last night. And that's kind of ridiculous when you consider the, the weighty subjects that were being discussed. Uh, but you're right. You know, you live by Twitter, you die by Twitter. Twitter really hurt Romney during the Republican convention because all the attention was on Eastwood and sort of that unbelievable, uh, you know, uh, off the top of his head, you know, unprepared scene that he that he that he did there. Um, but I think it again, I, I definitely think it helped him last night. It was interesting. Early on, it was clear Romney was winning, but the, the Democrats were were not ready to, to throw in the towel. You know, they were sort of, you know, retweeting things and and talking about Romney, you know, saying things that were not true and. And things like that, but really, after about you know forty-five or sixty minutes, uh, it was almost universal. And you started to see you know people on the left, like Bill Maher and Michael Moore, uh, and even uh, 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 you know middle of the road journalists like like uh, David Gregory of NBC that were starting to to, to to voice their own views that that Obama was underperforming, that Romney was winning, uh, and that really that really hardened. Again, when you turn when you turn on MSNBC and every single anchor there is is is, is griping about the debate, it, it really is quite telling. That's exactly right. Craig Shirley joins us from somewhere near Trickle Down Point in Virginia. Uh, I should say by preface that Craig is one of my favorite people that I watch on Morning Joe because I'm a Clinton Democrat, worked for President Clinton for five, six years, uh, and I love Morning Joe because both Scarborough and conservative people with conservative credentials like Shirley, at least to me, a, a centrist Democrat, uh, tell it like it is. Uh, and I've al- I also got into politics as a huge fan of Ronald Reagan, not so much for the substance of his policies, but for the way he carried himself and comported himself in the job of, of president before that governor of California and in his role as an actor. So I've always wanted to have Craig Shirley and Matt and I get to talk to him before his son's football game uh, in Virginia. So welcome to Polyoptics, Craig Shirley. Thank you, Josh, very much. So uh, I have observed, Craig, that you haven't shrunk from your criticism, both of Governor Romney or the, the way the Republican Party has, has had its trajectory going this year. Were you surprised by the way the debate went down this week? Yeah, I, I think I'm like everybody else, uh, Josh. Uh, I was, uh, uh, frankly, uh, surprised at uh, how well uh, uh, Mitt Romney did and how, frankly, poorly uh, President Obama did. The, the real judgment, though, is going to come from the American people. I'm reminded of 1980, 
uh, when uh, the, one week before the election, there was the historic debate between uh, Governor Reagan and uh, Jimmy Carter, and in the uh, in the hours afterwards, uh, all the analysis of all the uh, insiders and the the Washington elites and the chattering classes all said that Jimmy Carter had won the debate. Uh, then the uh, polling came out, uh, and it all it said that the uh, that in fact Ronald Reagan had won the debate. Now we know there's been overnight polling that says that uh, overwhelmingly uh, President uh, uh, Mitt Romney won the debate. I guess the question is, is that does this actually move numbers? Uh, you know, we're, we're as close in Virginia and uh, North Carolina and, and other uh, in other states, uh, or is it simply a momentary uh, high for the uh, for the Republicans and the Romney campaign? We 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 don't know the answer to that yet, and of course we don't know the answer to the importance of the debate until the actual election. If Romney wins then it will go down in history as one of the most important presidential debates in American history. If Romney loses, then it will be a footnote to history. Uh, Craig, Matt McCovick here. Great to be with you. Um, you you've written a lot about the 80, 1980 campaign, and, and I think one of the analogies people have, have drawn to, to 2012, and this is something I've often thought about, is you know, does 2012 look like 1980 or does it end up looking like 2004? Um, I know that some Reagan folks don't necessarily like the 1980 comparison, but but you can't help but think a little bit about that given what happened with the debate last night. Now, obviously, the debate you referenced was much later. It was the second debate. Uh, this is the first debate. It's a little bit earlier, so there's some slight differences. But but to what extent did you did you, did you see a, a parallel to to that to that Reagan debate performance, which really helped him win that campaign and what we saw from Romney? Actually. Um Reagan uh, in the 80 debate uh, was the master of subtlety, and where people thought he was uh, parrying a Clinton thrust, he was actually uh, counterpunching or counterthrusting uh, uh, very nicely. Whereas uh, he was, you know, most people agree that Reagan was not necessarily in a debate situation, always a great puncher, but he was a terrific counterpuncher. Whereas last night, uh, Mitt Romney was uh, basically punching away for the uh, for the entire evening. So. Um, I see more differences than I see uh, similarities in that uh, one is that I think everybody will agree that uh, Barack Obama, even in, in spite of last night, is a, is a superior politician to a Jimmy Carter. Uh, and that, uh, two, is that Ronald Reagan uh, was a superior conservative leader to, uh, to Mitt Romney. I think also, just in terms of the, uh, the nature of the campaign, uh, it was far more fluid in 1980. Uh, you know, when Reagan won... In 1980, he took over one third of the uh, Democratic vote uh, in in the United States. Jimmy Carter got, I believe, 63 percent of the registered Democrats, which is just astonishing if you think about it. Uh, uh, well, how well he did. He also got a very high percentage of the Hispanic vote, somewhere in the I think, I believe, 44, 47 percent of the Hispanic vote. A high degree of, uh, of Jewish Americans. So across the board. It was also more fluid in terms of the situation with the states, whereas, you, you know, you had, uh, you know, Texas was, uh, Carter had carried Texas in 1976, and it was considered to be up for grabs in, 19, uh, in 1980. Uh, New York State was up for grabs. Reagan was campaigning there in the last month. Uh, California, Reagan's home state, still had a two-to-one Democratic registration, uh, and Carter was uh, campaigning there. So the, the situation was far more fluid. The world situation was, was much more dangerous in 1980 than it is today. We also had hostages being held in uh, Tehran and have been there uh, as of Election Day exactly one year. Uh, we had 10,000 Soviet uh, missiles pointed at our children's uh, heads. 
Um, and so the world situation was far more dangerous uh, in, a, in a macro sense than it is, uh, than it, than it is today. So the, the, there are more differences there than there are similarities. I think where, where they become similar, uh, Matt, is that for the first time uh, is that uh, Romney articulated a, a philosophy of governance, which was somewhat centrist, somewhat Bob Dole, somewhat conservative. It was kind of a, of a, of a blending of three different brands of Republicanism. But it was a, it was a, it was a good job of, of explaining a, a Republican uh, brand of governance, something that he really hasn't done before, either in his convention speech or, or during the uh, primaries. Craig, a, a good politician has to be able to play in a, in a bunch of different uh, venues and stadium and turf. And so you saw him performing well this week uh, in the one-on-one debate uh, format with the backdrop of the Commission on Presidential Debates. But this weekend and now into the next two weeks before they meet in Hofstra, Governor Romney has to go back on the campaign trail uh, in a setting where I've seen both you and Scarborough uh, criticize uh, that he isn't comfortable. Uh, compare that to the way Reagan could move from a debate setting out into the campaign trail and the type of opponent he had in Carter. Uh, Reagan still shown more in that setting, too, but Obama seems to have quite the leg up when it comes to non-debate campaigning, and you really only have what, uh, 180 minutes left of debate, 90 of which are given over to town hall? Uh, Reagan, uh, Josh, had been the national stage uh, since the uh, late 30s, starting with his movie career and then moving through the uh, 50s with both the presidency of the Screen Actors Guild, which is a high-profile position, uh, and also, obviously, the uh, host of GE Theater, which was the number one rated show on television for uh, for nine years, he was host of it for eleven years, and uh, uh, so it was a very high profile. Um, Reagan understood what Shakespeare meant when he said the play's the thing. Uh, is that it is about the presentation, it is about uh, a holding stage, it is about how you command presence, and he moved very easily, um, you know, among people, and he moved very easily on a stage and in front of people. Um, there was uh, he he. It was actually I'll tell you. So it was actually news when Reagan turned in a bad uh, speech performance. When you know he al- he almost always turned in a good speech performance, and you know reporters would uniformly uh, you know yawn. Uh, but when he you know uh, missed a you know a, a mark or he fumbled over a sentence or something like that, um, that actually was reported more often than when he gave a good speech. But he was very graceful uh, and you know in a in an uncontrolled setting. Um, during the 1980 debate, um, uh, as you recall, Jimmy Carter had, uh, had against the wishes and, and uh, desires of his aide, had invoked his daughter, his daughter Amy's name in discussing uh, nuclear arms. Uh, it was a good try to, hide, try to humanize the uh, debate, but it didn't go over, and it became uh, a subject of, uh, of uh, mockery and mirth, and it actually took on a life of its own. Asked Amy in the week after the campaign or week after the debate took on a life of its own, and every place Reagan went, you know, uh, people were chanting, you know, crowds were chanting, "Ask Amy, ask Amy," and 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 he joined right in. He says, "You know, I remember when when uh, you know Ron and Patty and Mike were little kids, and we used to tuck them in, and they discussed nuclear weaponry with us, um, and that was all. That was all uh, completely off the cuff, um, and um, uh, you know, and then he had a rhetorical line uh, once where." Uh, you know, that he said, who is in charge over the White House? And, and the crowd started chanting, Amy, Amy, Amy. And he just lost his laughing. He says, well, maybe. <laughs> um, uh, and then 
there was another time late in the campaign where some protesters were chanting, Bonzo, 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 and of course it was an allusion, an allusion to uh, Reagan's movie, uh, Bedtime for Bonzo. And without missing a trick, he looked at the uh, protesters and he says, well, you better watch up because Bonzo grew up to be King Kong. Um, and so he always handled these things with a, with a lot of uh, a line and a lot of grace, and uh, he knew how to use uh, humor uh, both on himself and both uh, directed at his, at his, his opponents and uh, uh, protesters. Uh, I don't know. That, that is something that, though, that, I mean, that's almost something that you're, I don't know if it was his Irishness, uh, I don't know if it was by training, but that's something you almost can't learn. You either have it or you don't. I don't think Romney has that. He did display last night a, a level of uh, grace on the stage and a level of wit that a lot of people haven't seen before. Yeah, I wonder. I've wondered this question uh, before, Craig, and I bet you've been asked it, but but uh, I've never had a chance to ask ask you this. You know, we talk a lot. Republicans talk a lot about the Reagan era, and we hearken back to him. And in Republican primary debates, he's brought up very often. Uh, there's also been talk about how whether whether you know Reagan could get through a Republican primary given the the conservative. Uh, uh, feel that, that that we have in the Republican Party today. I know it's a different era and a little bit of this is, is conjecture, but but what, how do you think Reagan would fare today, both in terms of where the Republican Party is, but also in terms of where politics is? Well, I wanna, I'd like to, uh, for once and for all, uh, blow this thing out of the water. Because I've, heard <laughs> other people, I've heard people say this before, and, and, and it, it, of course it's hypothetical, but on the other hand, is that liberals make the charge that Reagan would be too liberal, but in fact, since Reagan was nominated, We've nominated two Bushes, a Dole, a McCain, and, and a Romney. Yep. Or, not we, they, the Republicans. Um, and, and all of them arguably degrees or even miles to the left of, uh, of Ronald Reagan. So uh, the idea that the party has gone too far right, I think, is, uh, is uh, <laughs> a somewhat uh, questionable debate. The other thing, too, you know, fellas, is that if you go back and you look at his 1975 remarks uh, announcing he was going to challenge... Gerald Ford in the Republican primaries, the 76 primaries, he gives a remarkable address in which he, he lays into the Washington buddy system. Uh, and he specifically mentions big government, big labor, and big corporations. Reagan was a Tea Party, uh, what understood the Tea Party concept long years before there was a Tea Party movement. He also understood what Milton Friedman once said. Milton Friedman once said that the greatest threat in this country to free enterprise uh, is government and corporations. And, and, and that Reagan was, like Friedman, was suspicious of any concentration of power because it inherently bred corruption and the diminution of personal freedoms. Uh, and so he was, he understood, uh, he, he understood the arguments of the Tea Party long before there was a Tea Party. Craig Shirley, we just got uh, another release of Nixon tapes, and you're the author of uh, Ronald Reagan, Rendezvous with Destiny, uh, the campaign that changed America and Reagan's revolution, the untold story of the campaign that started at all. Uh, we, we've now had many books on Ronald Reagan, but are there other chapters and stories about Reagan yet to be written that people don't truly understand? Well, as a matter of fact, I'm working on uh, two new books about Ronald Reagan, uh, one about the, uh, well, actually three. Uh, I'm doing a book on the 1968 campaign when he uh, challenged Richard Nixon for the nomination and actually came within uh, two delegations of winning the nomination in 1968. Had uh, He was able to flip Florida and Mississippi. Reagan would have been the nominee in 1968 and not Richard Nixon. Um, uh, Nixon uh, was nominated in 68 
actually by 200 less delegate votes than what uh, Barry Goldwater received in 1964. You know, the perception is that that uh, that uh, Goldwater had to claw and, and scratch his way to the nomination, which is true, but he still did it more comfortably than Nixon did in 1968. I'm also doing a book uh, about uh, Reagan's uh, post-presidency, uh, about his years uh, uh, out of office from uh, late uh, from from 19 uh, January of 89 up until June 5th 2004 when he uh, passed away. So I'm I'm working on so the there's the, you know Doug Brinkley the um, the uh, historian said that they, the the uh, history of Reagan is just beginning to be open and I suspect that Reagan like you know we're still reading new books about George Washington we're still reading new books about Abraham Lincoln. We're still reading new books about Dwight Eisenhower, whose historians are taking a second look at. Reagan is one of those uh, historic figures that I think will capture the imagination in the way these other great presidents did for generations to come. We haven't even gotten into, we're only at the first round of Reagan history. We haven't even gotten into the men around Ronald Reagan, the biographies of Ed Meese and Jim Baker and all these other uh, people uh, uh, around Reagan, you know, you can't write about George Washington without writing about the great men around him. You know, uh, Hamilton or uh, or Franklin or, or whoever. You can't write or think about Abraham Lincoln without thinking about the great men around him, both the uh, generals and the uh, civilians, whether it's Stanton or John Hay or, or or who have you. And the same thing with uh, with Franklin Roosevelt. You can't write about the greatness of Franklin Roosevelt without the great men around him, whether it was whether whether it was Eisenhower or whether it was. Uh, uh, Cordell Hall or, uh, or, or the, the uh, uh, Henry Stimson or the, uh, the other uh, military and civilian leaders. Great men tend to attract great men to them, and we're only we haven't even gotten into the great men that Reagan attracted. Well, Craig Shirley, Shirley and Bannister Public Affairs, uh, and more importantly to me as a midfielder, a, a great lacrosse legend. Uh, thank you so much for uh, taking some time out this afternoon before the game and spending some time with uh, with Matt and I on Polyoptics. Well, Matt and Josh, thank you so much. Uh, ask me anytime. Take care. So, Matt Makoviak, we've talked to Robert Draper, Craig Shirley, and it's left, I guess, to to you and I. I, I did find, if there's any uh, silver lining for our process, that the uh, civility exhibited between President Obama, Governor Romney, and the respect offered, uh, even though they were disagreeing at high substantive levels, there was no real acrimony or anger between each other. I want to hear uh, Governor Romney offering his anniversary wishes to President Obama, and then we'll wrap it up. And congratulations to you, Mr. President, on your anniversary. I'm sure this was the mo most romantic place you could imagine <laughs> here, here with me. So I, <laughs> congratulations. So uh, we'll see how this all ends up over the next uh, couple weeks, Matt, but uh, at least it was a, a nice moment of, of civility and a bit of humor from Governor Romney in the exchange uh, he had with the president. It was, and Romney's often called robotic and unfeeling and kind of hard to, to – has a tough time connecting, but, but he connected fairly well in the debate. And, uh, and, you know, it was interesting. I think Romney and Obama do not like each other. I think Obama doesn't really think Romney's a serious candidate for president. I think Romney thinks Obama's in over his head. That didn't really shine through last night. I mean, there was not much negativity or nastiness. The, the two the two candidates uh, had periods where they agreed, particularly on things like Social Security. Uh, they were you know kind and generous to each other for the most part. There there sort of is, was a Twitter scandal going on about whether uh, Obama told Romney that he won. 
at the end of the debate when they uh, when they shook hands. Not clear whether he said that or not, but but it was interesting to watch the interaction. And I, I tell you, the one thing we know for sure is two weeks from now the debate will be very different. I think Obama will be much more aggressive, and how Romney responds to that aggression, whether he's on his toes uh, and, and he's able to defend his own views and record, will be uh, will be of utmost importance. Uh, the debate between Benson and Quayle in '88 uh, was big. The debates between uh, Dick Cheney and John Edwards were big. What's your thought about the effect or lack thereof of? Biden versus Ryan next week. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the Biden-Palin debate was not important. It ended up not making a difference. Uh, you know, Palin did did pretty well, but Biden did fine. I think most people expect Ryan to, to do better on the details and perhaps Biden to do better on sort of the emotional connection. Um, but I don't. Again, I don't think even if Biden wins the debate, I don't think it breaks the the, the, the two week negative cycle that Obama is dealing with. Uh, what's going to be interesting is does Biden really hammer Ryan on the Ryan budget? And you know, the Romney team has sort of stepped back from the Ryan budget to some extent. We'll see. Biden is a, is a gap machine. Uh, you know, every day it's something new. He just recently said he he guarantees a, at least a one trillion dollar tax increase. Uh, after the debate, he said that at a campaign event. So there's always something new coming from him. And I think the Obama team does not probably not looking forward to the VP debate and, and, and sort of relying on Biden to perform well. But TVs will be tuned in and Twitter will be a, a Twitter, as they say. Uh, Matt Makoviak, thanks so much for sharing the uh, microphones with us today as our, our, our co-host. Enjoyed really it. Appreciate it. Enjoyed it. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. Thank you.